Hello and welcome to another episode of Hardtack. I am your host, Mike, and with me as always is my friend and co-host, Sam. Good morning, Sam, or good day. Good day to you, Mike. How's it yeah. going? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you just said, when you said Sam, you're like, Sam. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, doing all right. All right, here we go. Let's get into some Hardtack. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions expressed are that of the participants alone. Now, put on your Kevlar, secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. Remember, if you would like to add to the discussion from this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can do so on the Hardtack socials found via our link tree in the episode description. You can also check us out on our website and leave us a comment at hardtackpod.com. Don't forget to drop a review on whichever platform you use to consume your Hardtack, and please subscribe, or we will find you. Thanks. Quick reminder, this is the second part of a two-part series. Although this episode and the previous can be listened to as standalones, they are best heard in tandem. So if you want a bit of history on the Bay of Pigs invasion prior to the Missile Crisis, stop here and pick up with Hardtack episode 23. However, if you are a communist, go ahead and listen to them in reverse order. The year was 1962. In February... John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth. The World's Fair took place on April 21st in Seattle, Washington, and the Space Needle, which stands at 602 feet tall and features a rotating Sky City restaurant, was unveiled to the world. Black student John Meredith attempted to enroll at the University of Mississippi, leading to public backlash and rioting. Marvel's Spider-Man swung onto the comic book scene, Algeria gained independence from France, Jamaica from Great Britain. Blonde bombshell Marilyn Monroe famously sang happy birthday to American President John F. Kennedy in May, only to be found dead from an overdose three months later in August. Nelson Mandela was arrested for sabotage. The first James Bond film, Dr. No, hit London theaters. And for 13 days in October, the world held its breath faced with the threat of nuclear war. This is Hardtack, Episode 24, Cold War, Cuban Missile Crisis, 1962. 1947 is the year that the Cold War officially began. Though tensions between the United States and the USSR were well evident during World War II when the nations were allied. 
The Cold War drew the geopolitical lines between First World Western Bloc nations, Second World Eastern Bloc nations, and Third World Non-Aligned and Neutral nations. No major wars were fought between the US-led Western Bloc and the Soviet-led Eastern Bloc. Instead, the two belligerents threw diplomacy, informational, military and economic support into opposing regional conflicts or proxy wars. The ideological and geopolitical battle was waged through psychological warfare, propaganda, the espionage that continues to intrigue and capture our imaginations, rivalries in sports and the space race. The prize was legitimacy and global influence. The Cold War saw the formation of NATO in 1949. The USSR responded with the Warsaw Pact in 1955. The period between 1948 and 1962 can be characterised as a period of open hostility and escalation. There was espionage, the Berlin blockade and airlift, German rearmament, the Korean War, Sino-Soviet split, Berlin crisis of 1961, and finally the Cuban Missile Crisis and the ousting of Khrushchev. If you recall from our last episode, the United States failed in its attempt to overthrow the regime under Fidel Castro with the Bay of Pigs invasion. Needless to say, the Castro regime did not harbour any real love for the Kennedy administration. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev saw this as an opportunity and took advantage. In July 1962, Khrushchev and Castro reached a secret agreement. With Castro wishing to deter any further invasion attempts and overthrow of his government by the US, and the Soviets desiring the upper hand in the Chile chess game with their enemy. It was agreed that the Soviet Union could place nuclear missiles in Cuba. Construction began quickly. Four missile sites were under construction by late summer. The four sites were built in two pairs. On the western end of Cuba, outside of Havana, were the twin sites of San Cristobal and Guanaje. In the island centre was the Sagua La Grande and Remedios pair. These two sites were actually north and slightly west of the site of the Bay of Pigs. There was also the San Julian base on the far west of the island, which contained an airfield and a surface-to-air missile, or SAM site. So this isn't exactly relevant, but I found an interesting bit of trivia during research. Just outside of San Julian, there is a residential area called Yuri Gagarin. Do you know who Yuri Gagarin is? Um, Was he a cosmonaut or something? Yes. He was a Russian cosmonaut, and he was the first human in space. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that here in Cuba, to this day, there's a residential area, so civilian population living here, called Mm -hmm. Yuri Gagarin. And it it really goes to show the Russian influence that existed in Cuba at the time. Yeah, and it's actually, and they still haven't gotten rid of it. Like, they're just going to keep it that way, right? Yep, it's true. Yeah, so I I thought that was really cool. By September 5th, U.S. intelligence had confirmed construction on nine sites. Reports from naval base Guantanamo reported the heavy offloading of military equipment from several ships noted as being under rigid security measures. An informant reported seeing two Soviet submarines, and during both August and September, there was a large increase in belligerent harassment of U.S. reconnaissance and patrol forces. Six of the sites were reserved for R-12 medium-range missiles, designated as SS-4 Sandal by NATO. The SS-4 had an effective range of 2,000 kilometres, or 1.2,000 miles. The other three sites were reserved for R-14 intermediate-range ballistic missiles, designated SS-5 Skin by NATO. The SS-5 had a maximum range of 4.5,000 kilometres, or 2.8,000 miles. However, both of these distances are Soviet estimates. 
NATO estimates suggest a shorter range, though only by a few hundred miles. Cuba is only about 103 miles from Florida on the southeastern tip of the U.S. The distance between Cuba and Washington State in the far northwestern corner of the U.S. is just under 4.8 thousand kilometers, so the SS-5 could reach most locations in the U.S., as well as American holdings in the Western Hemisphere or American allies. Regardless of actual effective range, there were enough missiles that could deliver a nuclear payload from Cuba that they were a real threat. Before discovering the missile sites, the U.S. became aware of Soviet activity in Cuba. There was a notable increase in Soviet arms on the island to include Soviet IL-28 bombers. Now, I wasn't familiar with the bombers, so I checked them out. And here's what I learned. The NATO-designated Beagle, or IL-28, actually holds several distinctions in aviation history. Introduced in 1949, it was the first jet-powered bomber in Soviet service. And aside from the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was also used by Egypt against Israel in the Suez War in 1956. Its weapons arsenal included a twin NR-23, 23mm cannon turret, another pair of 23mm cannons mounted under the nose, and had a bomb loadout of up to 6.6 thousand pounds, or two light torpedoes that could be used for anti-ship runs. But it was versatile for another reason. There were multiple versions of the aircraft, and one in particular was a three-seat tactical reconnaissance aircraft fitted with cameras. It had a range of 2,260 kilometers, or 1,404 miles. So from Cuba, these bombers could easily reach the U.S. mainland. The arms buildup and presence of bombers caused President Kennedy to issue a warning on September 4th against the buildup of offensive weapons in Cuba. The USSR and Cuba dismissed the warning entirely. On October 14, 1962, during a routine high-altitude surveillance flight, Major Richard Hazer piloted his U-2 spy plane over Cuba and photographed a Soviet SS-4 ballistic missile being assembled for installation. So when you say high-altitude surveillance flight, is that another way of saying that it would have been too high for the Soviet Union to detect that kind of aircraft. Right, that's the intent. It's a spy plane. It's supposed to be yeah. a, you know, like a stealth plane. It's not a stealth fighter, obviously. But the mm. U-2, uh, aside from the band being amazing and one of my favorites, the U-2 spy mm. plane was really good at reconnaissance. So, yeah, it flew high altitude. And also remember, it's flying over Cuba. And Cuba's military technology and capabilities at the time were quite low, were, 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 right. especially in comparison to the United States. They didn't have the equipment technology. or the, the technology right, uh, to detect something like this. Now, whether or not you know, regular reconnaissance uh, flights by the United States were known or unknown, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly not too sure. Um, but needless to say, the Soviets knew what they were doing in Cuba, and I think they were well aware of the fact that reconnaissance by the United States was being conducted. And we're going to get more right. into that in the episode. I, I, I have the belief that nuclear war was not something that Russia wanted at any point. I think this was, mm-hmm. I think this was designed for a very specific response, and, and, and we're going to see that later. Ah, uh, Okay. All right, so let's put things into perspective for a moment. 
It is October 1962. Kennedy has been president for just two years. The U.S. is also embroiled in the Vietnam War, and the Viet Cong insurgency is expanded into South Vietnam. Also remember that direct U.S. military involvement in Vietnam didn't really take off until 1965. At this point, our involvement was supposed to be advisory only. So more secrecy. Because other things were happening. And now, the young president from Massachusetts is faced with the threat of nuclear weapons close enough to the U.S. mainland that panic and anxiety are more than understandable. There is much to digest on Kennedy's plate, and not much time to deliberate on action. So the question is, what to do? Obviously, the presence of nuclear missiles so close to the U.S. could not be allowed. But the removal of the weapons was not exactly simple. It had to be done in a way that did not increase the possibility of a nuclear war. A decision was needed that would de-escalate the situation. So Kennedy gathered his advisors and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Multiple options were weighed, one of which was a bombing raid that targeted the missile sites, followed by a full-scale invasion of Cuba. However, with the disaster that was the Bay of Pigs invasion in mind, this option was thankfully left on the cutting room floor. A second option was, quote, stern warnings to Cuba and the Soviet Union, end quote. Essentially, we have two extremes here. On one end of the spectrum, we have large-scale, decisive military action in the form of a bombing raid and invasion. On the other end, we have diplomatic scolding and finger-wagging. It is obvious that military action, such as an invasion, would only serve to increase the risk of an all-out nuclear war, while sternly telling Cuba and the Soviets to play nice would simply be ignored. Hell, they didn't even take Kennedy's warning seriously in September and continued with the arms buildup. But with a spectrum, luckily, there is middle ground. And it was middle ground that Kennedy chose, and it was in the form of a naval quarantine. A naval quarantine would not simply go unnoticed and could deliver a strong message without escalating tensions. But Kennedy also needed to inform the American people and the world of this situation in Cuba. On October 22, 1962, Kennedy addressed the Soviet arms buildup in Cuba by radio and television. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Upon receiving the first preliminary hard information of this nature, last Tuesday morning at 9 a.m., I directed that our surveillance be stepped up. And having now confirmed and completed our evaluation of the evidence and our decision on a course of action, this government feels obliged to report this new crisis to you in fullest detail. The characteristic of these new missile sites indicate two distinct types of installation. Several of them include medium-range ballistic missiles capable of carrying a nuclear warhead for a distance of more than 1,000 nautical miles. Each of these missiles, in short, is capable of striking Washington, D.C., the Panama Canal, Cape Canaveral, Mexico City, or any other city in the southeastern part of the United States, in Central America, or in the Caribbean area. Additional sites not yet completed 
appear to be designed for intermediate-range ballistic missiles, capable of traveling more than twice as far, and thus capable of striking most of the major cities in the Western Hemisphere, ranging as far north as Hudson's Bay, Canada, and as far south as Lima, Peru. In addition, jet bombers, capable of carrying nuclear weapons, are now being uncrated and assembled in Cuba, while the necessary air bases are being prepared. This urgent transformation of Cuba into an important strategic base by the presence of these large, long-range, and clearly offensive weapons of sudden mass destruction constitutes an explicit threat to the peace and security of all the Americas in flagrant and deliberate defiance of the Rio Pact of 1947, the traditions of this nation and hemisphere, the joint resolution of the 87th Congress, the Charter of the United Nations, and my own public warnings to the Soviets on September 4th and 13th. Words have meaning, and the wording used to describe the American response to the Cuban Missile Crisis was important to de-escalation efforts. Rather than call the American response a naval blockade, Kennedy and his staff chose quarantine, and the use of the word quarantine served a very specific purpose. It made clear to all parties involved, and those that observed around the world, that the U.S. was not in a state of war with Cuba or the Soviet Union. The message was that the naval action wasn't a wartime maneuver meant to isolate and choke an enemy, but a precautionary measure intended to prevent the spread of a threat. So, essentially, it was containment. It was containment of the issue to try and not escalate it further to something that could be worse. So, like, as you said, wording is incredibly important, and I can't imagine what could have happened if they called it a naval blockade. I don't know how far words can go, but, right. I mean... Yeah, containment. containment's just that, you know, like you said, and... It, it turns into, hey, we're not the bad guys here. We're just trying to keep things from getting bad for everyone. Mm. So the language is very important. President Kennedy sent a letter to Soviet Premier Khrushchev, and it was not the last communication between the two during the 13-day crisis. The letter made clear American demands. Kennedy informed the Soviets that the U.S. would not allow any further offensive weapons to be delivered to Cuba and further demanded that those already in Cuba be dismantled and returned to the Soviet Union. Kennedy also made plain to Khrushchev that the U.S. stood ready to respond. Quote, It was in order to avoid any incorrect assessment on the part of your government with respect to Cuba that I publicly stated that if certain developments in Cuba took place, the United States would do whatever must be done to protect its own security and that of its allies. End quote. The full text of the letter is available online, and we will leave a link in the show notes and on our socials. President Kennedy wanted to do everything, short of armed conflict, to prepare for the worst. This meant increasing the readiness status of the U.S. military to DEFCON 3. Two steps from war, that being DEFCON 5. 3 represents, quote, a readiness posture that requires certain portions of the assigned forces to assume an increased readiness posture above that of normal readiness. End quote. What this boils down to is that leaves were canceled. All able-bodied troops were returned to their units and were placed in a preparatory posture to quickly deploy should it become necessary. 
they were battle ready. The quarantine began on October 22nd, the same day as Kennedy's address. By the end of the crisis, over 140 ships and more than 350 combat-capable aircraft were used in the quarantine. Aircraft were located at U.S. Naval Air Station Jacksonville in Florida, Naval Base Guantanamo, Naval Air Station Key West, also in Florida, and Naval Air Station Roosevelt Roads, Puerto Rico. Why so many aircraft, though? Well, the idea that Cuba should be invaded was not entirely dismissed. From history.navy.mil, quote, It was placed to the right in the spectrum of action. First would come the limited blockade, then a complete blockade. These failed to achieve the removal of the offensive weapons. The next step would be selective airstrikes, followed finally by the implementation of one of two invasion plans. 314, where time did not permit peak readiness of the invasion force, or 316, where amphibious and airborne assault could be accomplished from a full readiness posture. End quote. As we know now, an invasion never occurred. The quarantine served its purpose while diplomats navigated the tenuous situation. However, de-escalation was not exactly quick. Premier Khrushchev responded to Kennedy's initial letter two days later on the 24th of October. He called the quarantine a blockade and described it as an act of aggression, ignoring the fact that placing nuclear missiles in Cuba was aggressive in and of itself. He also informed Kennedy that the Cuban-bound Russian ships would continue with normal operations. However, upon reaching the quarantine line, many ships were turned away. Those found to not contain offensive weapons were allowed to proceed. This was a smart decision as it drew a clear line for the Soviets that the issue was weaponry, and it upheld the message that the quarantine was non-aggressive and was meant to de-escalate the situation rather than inflame it. By the 26th, Kennedy came to believe that U.S. military action was going to be necessary. Soviet missile construction continued and was nearly complete. But Kennedy kept a level head. He and his staff decided to allow diplomatic action a bit more time before pulling the proverbial trigger. That same night, the 26th, Khrushchev sent Kennedy a letter. A portion of the letter read, quote, if there is no intention to doom the world to the catastrophe of thermonuclear war, then let us not only relax the forces pulling on the ends of the rope, let us take measures to untie that knot. We are ready for this. End quote. It was also indicated that if the U.S. promised not to invade Cuba, the Soviets would remove the missiles. But on the 27th, a new demand was entered by the Soviet premier. Kennedy received a message that indicated any agreement about the removal of missiles from Cuba could only be reached if the U.S. in turn promised to remove its own Jupiter missiles from Turkey. Jupiter missiles were spread throughout Europe and were specifically placed to deter Soviet action on the continent. So now Khrushchev has revealed his intentions and he's played his hand. However, Kennedy responded just to the first of Khrushchev's messages with a promise that the U.S. would not invade Cuba and proposed disarmament and de-escalation steps. Kennedy did ignore the second letter about the Jupiter missiles, which was a risky decision. But on the 28th of October, Khrushchev publicly stated that the Soviet missiles were to be dismantled and removed from Cuba. The U.S. naval quarantine ended on the 20th of November when the Soviets further removed their IL-28 bombers. The U.S. Jupiter missiles were later removed from Turkey, 
and April of 1963. But th- this was not in response to Khrushchev's demands. There were already American plans to remove the Jupiter missiles from Turkey prior to. In the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the United States and the USSR were able to reach an understanding and agree to new terms that would prevent a potential nuclear c- catastrophe from occurring ever again. And the following was agreed upon. So a direct telephone link between the White House and the Kremlin was established, and it became known as the hotline. The Memorandum of Understanding between the United States of America and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics regarding the establishment of a direct communications link, also referred to as the hotline agreement, was signed by the United States and the Soviet Union on the 20th of June, 1963. And this agreement was created to facilitate faster communication between the two governments and reduce the risk of an accidental nuclear war. And this kind of goes back to what we were having a quick discussion about before we started recording. Um, the communication, like the letters between the between Khrushchev and Kennedy, wasn't exactly speedy. Like it wasn't no. a it wasn't a quick communication. No. And again, it was written communication, so. I mean, I suppose much like text messaging today, like you can take words out of context so wildly without actually speaking to the per- mm. to the person over the phone. It's true. Um, so those were two factors that really contributed to, I suppose, the misunderstandings between Kennedy and Khrushchev. Right. So this was an important an important step for the future in in order to prevent something like this happening again, despite the fact that, you know, it's merely just a telephone link that could save, you know, this from ever happening again. Right. Two comments on this. Number one, the hotline is very not creative. A lot like Operation (laughs) Success from the last last episode. episode. Yeah. (laughs) I also found it funny that it was, you know, in the Cold War, it's like, well, this will be the hotline, but... Mm. Puns, puns. Yeah. Um, but no, so the hotline wasn't established. The hotline agreement signed and established uh, in June of 63, two mm. months after the U.S. removed its Jupiter missiles from Turkey. Oh, wow. So That's that was right. a demand, yeah. right? And that yeah. second letter that Kennedy dismissed, but here they are removing them in April mm. of 63. And all of a sudden, the hotline agreement and the hotline is established. And we've got yeah. even greater cooperation between the two. So yeah, I don't know if they took it as a sign of good faith, or may- maybe the timing is just purely coincidental rather than, you know, coinciding, but pretty interesting. There, yeah. there were a lot of steps taken between the Kennedy administration and Soviet Premier uh, Khrushchev's cabinet that mm. the, the, this all occurred in 63. And I'm sure for the world, especially after the 13 days in October. Yeah. This looks very positive. And I think it for everybody yeah. it was a breath of fresh air. I bet. And it would have been a really uncertain time yeah. to be to be in. So that definitely would have been a, a breath of fresh air. And just a little tidbit uh, for those that don't know, and you can feel free to cut this if you want to. So in movies and uh, television shows, you'd often see – uh, a red telephone in <laughs> <Yeah>. the <laughs> presidential office. Yep. And that is supposed to be the hotline. Um, uh, but in real life, that phone is not actually red, mm. um, which is quite interesting. Oh, yeah. I, I, it shows up in everything. I mean, I even mentioned mm-hmm. the, you know earlier Dr. No with James Bond and, and all those spy movies, all those espionage mm-hmm. movies, the war movies, the, yeah. phone's, the phone's fucking red. Yeah. 
Secondly, having approached the brink of nuclear conflict, both superpowers began to reconsider the nuclear arms race and took the first steps in agreeing to a nuclear test ban treaty. Well before the Cuban Missile Crisis, there were several attempts by the United Nations Disarmament Commission, or the UNDC, to begin negotiations on ending nuclear weapons testing. In May 1955, the UNDC brought together the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, France, and the Soviet Union in an attempt to finalise negotiations on an official treaty. Though it wasn't long before conflict arose over inspections to verify underground testing. In particular, the Soviet Union was concerned that on-site inspections may result in espionage, which could expose the Soviets' vastly exaggerated claims of the number of deliverable nuclear weapons. Despite the struggle over differences, the US and Soviet Union suspended nuclear testing, an embargo that lasted from November 1958 until late 1961. Since 1956, JFK was very supportive of banning nuclear weapons testing. He strongly advocated for a prohibition during his 1960 presidential campaign, as he was under the impression a prohibition would force other nations from no longer acquiring nuclear weapons. After Kennedy was elected, he pledged to not resume testing in the air and promised to pursue all diplomatic efforts for a test ban treaty before underground testing had resumed. He envisioned the test ban treaty as the first step to nuclear disarmament. Political and military advisors to JFK were gravely concerned that the Soviet Union had advanced nuclear technology and maintained its covert underground testing. They pressured JFK into resuming testing for this reason. Additionally, a Gallup survey conducted in July 1961 found that the general public supported testing by a two-to-one majority. The Soviet Union declared its intention to resume atmospheric testing in August 1961, and during the following three months, it carried out 31 nuclear tests. In the process, the Soviet Union detonated the biggest nuclear weapon ever, 58 megatons, which was 4,000 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. President Kennedy undertook diplomatic efforts after being discouraged by the Soviet testing before allowing renewed testing by the United States. He urged the Soviet Union, quote, not to an arms race, but to a peace race, end quote, in his speech to the United Nations in 1961. After failing to negotiate a diplomatic deal, JFK reluctantly announced the resumption of atmospheric testing, and American testing resumed on April 25, 1962. After the Cuban Missile Crisis in October that same year, JFK and Khrushchev recognised they had been dangerously close to nuclear war. Both Khrushchev and JFK worked to reduce hostilities between their two nations. Quote, the two most powerful nations have been squared off one another, each with its finger on the button. End quote, was how Khrushchev phrased it. And in response, during a meeting at the White House, JFK stated, It is ridiculous that two individuals sitting on opposite sides of the earth should be able to decide to bring an end to civilization. Khrushchev and JFK thus re-op- reopened dialogue in a series of private letters on, ban- on banning nuclear testing. After 12 days of negotiations on July 25, 1963, the two nations agreed to ban testing in the atmosphere, in space, and underwater. The following day, in a television address announcing the agreement, Kennedy claimed that a limited test ban is, quote, safer by far for the United States than an unlimited nuclear arms race, end quote. It's it's very evident that both leaders didn't want nuclear war. Mm. And, you know... It's, it's also interesting that Kennedy, like you stated, reluctantly announced 
that they were going to resume atmospheric testing in April of 62, mm. which yeah. just a few months later resulted in the Soviet Union linking mm. up with Cuba and constructing nuclear missile sites. Mm. It, it, it's it's so back and forth here. Yeah, so much back and forth. But I think JFK summed it up perfectly when when that quote, how ridiculous ridiculous it is that two individuals get to decide what happens to civilization. It's it's insane. Yeah, the the fate of the Earth, right, lying on these two individuals because absolutely, if this would have gone way worse than it did it would have meant i mean i I can't really say the end of the earth but definitely the worst catastrophe humans have ever seen like since we've existed you know Mm -hmm. so um yeah and you you know you know (laughs) i'm an avid video game fan and and all i can think of is fallout Fallout. 2077 (laughs) right you know but it, yeah. which is you know fun to explore and, and you know enjoy and so on but in a fictional environment but when we talk about it realistically it's like oh, devastation i mean j- just go yeah. back to episode one just go back to episode one of mm-hmm. hard Tag with the atomic yeah. bombing of hiroshima and some of the eyewitness accounts and what they went through mm. you, you talk about that on a, on a on a global global scale good god yeah no, there'd be no recovering from that. And here we are, mm. you know, 2023 with all the nonsense going on in Europe and in, Europe, in Ukraine with, again, another yeah. Russian fucking dictator. And mm. um, we're, we're talking, you know, strategic nuclear weapons. And it's like, why, why, yeah. why go that far? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, I suppose you can only hope that this kind of sense that they came to following the Cuban Missile Crisis, the world can hopefully come to um, again in the future should we reach that kind of level of emergency ever again. Mm. Um, Hopefully we can prevent that from ever happening because I can't even imagine. Yeah. No, uh, cooler heads definitely prevailed uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and we could only hope that if tensions ever did, you know, if the, if that knot ever was retied in that in that rope, to use Khrushchev's, mm. you know, language, um, that they would find a way to untie it. Yeah. All right, that'll do it for Hardtack episode twenty-four: Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, nineteen sixty-two. Make sure to tune in next week as we visit the year nine CE and the Battle of Teutoburg Forest. As always, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. And remember to keep your hardtack dry.